Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to this evening's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Eric Siegel, chair of the club's personal growth forum and your host. We invite everyone to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. This evening, we continue our series of talks about false narratives, which have been with us a long time. As the famous satirist Jonathan Swift said in 1710, falsehood flies and truth comes limping after it, so that when men come to be undeceived, it is too late. The jest is over and the tale hath had its effect. Like a man who hath thought of a good repartee, when the discourse is changed or the company parted. The danger, of course, is that false narratives and their cousins, conspiracy theories, can damage the shared fact base on which democracy depends. Whether through distorted context, misleading editing, oversimplification, incorrect extrapolation from a few examples, or outright lying, the result is the same. There could be a loss of trust in institutions, tribalism, and a search for an authoritarian leader in confusing times, increased stress levels and anger in society, and resulting legitimization of violence. It's therefore important that we look at the causes of false narratives and some possible actions we can take to decrease their power. Our first talk in the series on September 1st by Joe Pierre was a tutorial on the psychology of false narratives and the social and technological factors that make them so powerful today. Today's talk by Lee McIntyre is on how to deprogram a friend or family member. And the third talk on September 29th will be about actions we can take as a society and as individuals to reduce the power of false narratives in our world. Lee McIntyre is one of the leading experts on how to respond to science denial and other forms of what he calls post-truth, where alternative facts replace actual facts and feelings have more weight than evidence. Indeed, a book of his, titled Post-Truth, is about why so many people felt free to reject facts that they don't like. His recent book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, made him the perfect person to speak with us this evening about a problem many of us have faced, how to talk with a friend or family member who has been enticed down the glittering path of false narratives and conspiracy theories. Lee holds a PhD in philosophy from the University of Michigan. He's a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University, and he's the former executive director of the Institute for Quantitative Social Sciences at Harvard University. He's also the acclaimed author of over 10 books and countless essays and published articles. We are fortunate to have him with us today, and I know he's looking forward to your questions. So it is now my pleasure to introduce Dr. McIntyre. Thank you so much, uh, Eric. I appreciate that uh, nice introduction. And uh, thank you to everyone uh, on staff for this uh, wonderful invitation to speak before the uh, Commonwealth Club of California. What an honor. Uh, thank you very much. So the title of my talk today, as you know, is My Friend is a Science Denier, What Can I Do? And I'm going to talk to you today about what to say to your friends and family who think that climate change is a hoax or who won't take their COVID shots, or who think that there isn't enough evidence to show that evolution is true, or, God forbid, think that the Earth is flat. The good news is that there's some important recent empirical work which shows that it is possible to convince some science deniers to give up their mistaken beliefs. The bad news is that this doesn't always work, but it works often enough to give one hope. Now, there's one important wrinkle to this, 
which is that the way that you've been trying to do it so far is probably wrong. Appealing to a denialist by presenting them with facts and evidence isn't likely to work. This is called the information deficit model, and it presumes that your recalcitrant friends and family are just like scientists, except they don't know the facts. So once you share the evidence, they'll change their minds, right? But as Dr. Phil says, how's that working out for you? I have my uh, uh, requisite quotation here from Jonathan uh, Swift because I, I heard uh, Eric give one earlier. This one says, you can't reason someone out of something that they didn't reason themselves into in the first place. Unfortunately, there are no magic words you can say to convince someone that their deeply held non-evidential uh, beliefs are false. Now, why is that? It's because if their beliefs aren't based on evidence, and think about it, how could they be if they're science deniers? Then you probably aren't going to be able to convince them uh, by overwhelming them with evidence to talk them out of it. But now here's some encouraging news. Because if the folks that you're planning to speak with are friends and family, you've already got a leg up on the problem. Because what denialism is really about isn't just bad facts or bad evidence. It's about distrust. So if the person that you're trying to convince is someone that you know, then perhaps you already have a trusting relationship with them. So that might give you a head start. But still, you've got to handle it right. Your attitude and demeanor will end up being just as important as what you say to them. It still may not work, but what I'm going to do tonight is try to share some insights that will at least give you a shot. I want to start with what the research tells us. In the summer of 2019, there was a study published in a journal called Nature Human Behavior by Cornelia Bache and Philip Schmid. And this provided the first empirical evidence to show that we can fight back against science deniers. I joked with my, my friends that I could have read this study if my hair were on fire, because here it was, the first empirical evidence on something that I'd been studying for, uh, for a long time. The study was done online with about 1,700 subjects, uh, some in the USA, some in Germany. And what they did was expose uh, these folks, who were, I'm sure were college undergraduates, to a false message about science, and then immediately try to push back against it. This is called debunking. And there were two possible strategies that you could use. The first strategy is no surprise. It's called content rebuttal. And it's when you provide the scientific evidence. Now, if you're a climatologist and you're the person that you're debating with is saying that climate change isn't real, I mean, go nuts. You know the facts. Um, and that sometimes works. Okay, so I said earlier that pushing back with facts uh, doesn't necessarily work. The people that it works for are the people who really know the facts. So if you really know the facts, then this is your way. Content rebuttal. Use that. And sometimes that will work. What was really fascinating about the Bates and Schmidt study, though, is that they provided a second avenue for the rest of us, the ones who are not scientists, but who are allies of science and want to know that there's something that we can do. Um, and what this is called is technique rebuttal. And technique rebuttal is based on some earlier work by the Hufnagel brothers and by uh, cognitive scientists John Cook and Stephen Lewandowski who discovered that there are really five tropes of science denial. That is to say that all science deniers reason according to the same flawed blueprint. And here's what they do. Step one, 
They cherry pick evidence. Step two, they believe in conspiracy theories. Step three, they rely on fake experts and they discount or discredit real experts. Step four, they engage in illogical reasoning. And step five, this is my favorite, they insist that science has to be perfect in order to be credible. Now, what Schmidt showed is that if you learn these five tropes about how science deniers uh, reason, and, and you, you, know, you learn them carefully, you can use those to push back. Uh, Schmidt found that both forms of rebuttal, both content rebuttal and technique rebuttal, were effective. And in fact, they found that they were equally effective. And they found that there was no additive effect. Now, that is phenomenal news. Because if you think about it for a minute, what that means is that even lay people can push back against science deniers. And they can be just as effective at it as scientists because there's no additive effect. So you don't need to be a scientist to defend science, which is terrific news. But now I want to talk about some qualifications. Uh, the studies showed that we can only mitigate, not overturn, the effects of exposure to scientific misinformation. That is to say, once scientific misinformation is out there, it's virulent, and you can catch some people, but some you're not going to be able to catch. So this is to say that there's still some negative exposure, uh, a negative effect of exposure to science denial, which means that the best thing of all is to not allow the science denier to spread their disinformation in the first place. But the very worst thing is to walk away if they're spreading that disinformation. Bates and Schmidt capture this uh, by a joke, saying that if you're invited to a debate, you should accept, but then cancel at the last minute, if that means that the debate is going to be canceled, because then that would prevent the audience from hearing uh, the scientific disinformation. But if it's held anyway, then you've got to show up why? Because, as they said, the, your job is to keep the audience from hearing the misinformation. The point of pushing back against science deniers isn't just to change their mind. It's to keep them from spreading and amplifying their message to change other people's mind to their denialist perspective. Now, I want to turn to a couple of other things about the Bates and Schmidt study, which was incredibly well done. But it had some limitations. And by that, I don't mean that there were uh, flaws in the study. I just mean that it was a scientific study. It couldn't show everything. But I'm a philosopher of science, and I started to think about, you know, well, what are some research questions that they left out? Well, the, the main thing that I started to think about was, what do you say in person? What do you say in real life? I mean, this study was done in a lab. So the first thing that uh, comes up is the problem of time proximity. The study only dealt with debunking science denial messages immediately after they were heard. But I started to wonder, what about overturning beliefs? What about the hardcore, the people who had been marinating in scientific disinformation for a decade? Would, the, would content rebuttal or technique rebuttal work there too? That wasn't uh, part of the study. They were uh, debunking people who had just heard the false message. And I got to thinking, well, that's got to be easier to do than the hardcore. So it's a scientific question. Would this work? Another question that was raised by a commentator on the study um, 
along these lines was uh, his name is a Sander Vanderlinden, and he he's a a leader in this field and also in something called pre-bunking, because as it turns out, the very best thing is not to debunk but to pre-bunk. Okay, to use maybe these five techniques of science denial uh, on the denier in advance before they hear the bad information to say to them, you know, you're going to be hearing some conspiracy theories about vaccines. Here's why conspiracy theories aren't a good idea. Okay. But that still doesn't solve my problem about the hardcore, you know, the people who have been listening to the denialism for 10 years, pre-bunking is not going to work. You're too late. And, but can they still be debunked? That was my question. The second um, limitation to the Bates and Schmidt study is that it was done online. Now, I understand why studies are done online. Uh, you know, of course, most studies these days are probably done online. And yet, the most likely place you're going to meet a science denier is in person across the Thanksgiving table. Now, yes, you're going to meet them in the comments section of the New York Times, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the hardest place to convince somebody. But the title of my talk tonight is about talking to your family and friends, and you don't meet them online. You meet them face-to-face. And in fact, you you meet a lot of science deniers face-to-face, probably. And my question was, okay, do technique rebuttal and content rebuttal rebuttal work face-to-face? In fact, do they maybe work better face-to-face? We just don't know, and we're going to have to do some scientific study on that. Now, I think there are answers to these questions. But here's where we begin to outrun the scientific literature. And so what I'm going to talk about next is based on some of my own uh, practical experience and some research that I did for my book, How to Talk to a Science Denier. But that's really comes from the anecdotal literature, because there turns out to be a lot of anecdotal literature on science denial. That's not a well-controlled scientific study, but it tells a story about how science deniers change their mind. Now, I have a thick file on my desk of virtually every case that I could get my hands on of a hardcore science denier who changed their mind. And there are a shocking number of them where this actually happens. So clearly, this is happening out in the wild. And I wanted to know why. And as I read and read and read these studies, I discovered a fascinating pattern. Nearly everyone who has their minds changed about their denialist beliefs does so after a face-to-face encounter with someone that they trust. Um, When evidence is presented by someone that they have a trusting relationship with, they're more likely to want to listen to it. Um, You can look yourself for examples in the news media. Uh, To my knowledge, there really hasn't been any academic work on this, but the case studies are in the popular press and they all paint this same portrait. And that is that engagement is the key for overcoming denialist beliefs. And that's because denialists don't just have an information deficit. They have a trust deficit. So it matters crucially who's sharing the information and how. And if they trust you, as I said at the opening, you've already got a leg up. I want to tell you two quick stories of my own here. Um, One is about an anti-vax about a a group of anti-vaxxers in uh, Clark County, Washington in 2014. There was a measles outbreak. And there's, I'm sure, a correlation between the fact that there were, uh, you know, a a number of uh, anti-vaxxers in Clark County, Washington, and that that's where they had the measles outbreak. It's no coincidence. Um, Well, what Governor Jay Inslee, 
did uh, of uh, Washington State is he sent some public uh, health officials down to Vancouver, uh, which is just across the river from Portland, Oregon, my my hometown. And they talked to the science deniers. They talked to the anti-vaxxers. And I'll let you read the story for yourself in the Washington Post. Short story, it worked. Uh, they didn't get everyone, but they got a shocking number of them to say that they were willing to take their vaccinations. Um, how did they do it? They did it by face-to-face -face encounter, by being warm and engaging and trustworthy. Uh, you can Google this, though I hope not right now. Uh, the story is called, um, It Will Take Off Like Wildfire, and it's in the Washington Post. So if you put that in Google, um, it should come up. And you can read all of these wonderful quotations from people who were previously anti-vax, who changed their mind because of how warm and, and wonderful the scientists were. The second case I want to talk about, this is actually my favorite is about a, a member of the U.S. House of Representatives some years back named Jim Bridenstine. Uh, Jim Bridenstine was a rock-ribbed conservative who happened to be a climate denier. And in fact, he gave a speech in the, uh, the floor of the U.S. House saying all the things that climate deniers say about it being a hoax, there wasn't enough evidence, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then a funny thing happened. Um, he got appointed to be the head of NASA um, by Donald Trump. Because what else would you do with a guy who was a, a virulent climate denier, but make him the head of, you know, one of the main scientific organizations that studies climate change? So Jim Bridenstine became head of NASA. Funny thing happened to Jim Bridenstine. Within a couple of months, he changed his mind and said so publicly and gave another speech in which he said he had changed his mind. Now, what happened? I think it's trust. In the first speech, he was talking about the scientists who couldn't be trusted. Well, maybe he didn't know them, but now he was their boss. Now he knew them. Now he saw them in the hallway. He had lunch with them. He was their supervisor. He discovered that they were pretty trustworthy people, and he changed his mind about climate change. I think what both of these stories show is that even empirical beliefs can be tribal. Uh, they're about more than just facts and evidence. Uh, those beliefs, most beliefs, are shaped by issues of trust, identity, values. What community are you in? And does that community include any scientists? As it turns out, if you're dealing with hardcore science deniers, context matters a lot. Face-to-face -face encounters are best. That's where trust is built. It's the not that the scientific evidence isn't persuasive, it's that you have to approach it with the, uh, the right attitude and the right person, maybe a trustworthy person. You can build trust, but if the person already trusts you, then you've got a leg up. Still, attitude is important. Don't insult or yell at the person. Treat them with respect. Stay calm. Uh, there's actually some academic work to back this up, but I think most of the, us know this already, right? If you're trying to convince somebody to give up their beliefs, don't call them stupid. I mean, duh, we all knew this already, but there is actually a, some academic work on this. So I can give you the citation for it if you're interested in it. You need to realize something else too, though, which is that the person that you're talking to maybe is not stupid. It's just that they're too locked in to hear what you're saying. They feel threatened by the idea that they need to change their mind, especially if they hear it from somebody who's outside their community that they don't trust.
So how do you break through that? If the person doesn't already trust you, how do you get them to trust you? The best way is to listen. If you want somebody to listen to you, listen to them. Make sure they feel heard. Be patient. Even if you can't talk someone out of their beliefs, sometimes you can create a situation where they can talk themselves out of it. Or later, when they're reflecting on what you said, as I said, if you listen to someone, maybe they'll listen to you. And now I want to tell you about one of my personal experiences that forms some of the backbone research for my book. In November 2018, I went to a Flat Earth convention. Now, I'm going to say that again. In November 2018, I went to the Flat Earth International Conference in Denver, Colorado, where I spent 48 hours with 650 flat earthers. I spent the entire first day with my mouth shut. I just listened. I didn't lie to anybody. I didn't tell them that I believed what they believed. I just listened. But then on the second day, I came out hard as a philosopher of science who just had a few questions. Now, I caught a break here because to a person, and what I learned on that first day, is that the hardcore flat earthers were flat earthers because they thought they had the evidence. They thought that the evidence for the round earth was flawed uh, because of a conspiracy theory that they believed. And they thought that they had the evidence to show that the earth was actually flat. Um, so they, if I had gone in there and they'd said, no, this was a matter of faith, then I wasn't going to be able to convince them because how do you do that, right? But I caught a break because they said no, that their beliefs were based on evidence. Now, I knew that that didn't mean that I should just launch in and start doing content rebuttal. Uh, didn't actually know that term yet. This was before the Schmidt study was out. But I didn't want to just talk the scientific evidence with them because, for one thing, I'm not a scientist. But for another, um, they already knew it. I mean, they had read Aristarchus. They had read Galileo and Newton. They knew the physics. And so it had been around for 2,300 years. If they didn't believe it from, you know, from Newton, why were they going to believe it from me? Um, they didn't trust the scientists. They didn't trust me. Uh, they thought that all the evidence was flawed. So instead, I sought to challenge their reasoning. I'm a philosopher. This is what I do for a living. I talk about reasoning. Uh, I wanted to talk about how they were thinking about evidence, how, you know, what evidence meant to them and how that led them to the conclusions. Uh, I tried a lot of questioning. Here was the question that worked the best. I catched this one from Karl Popper. What evidence, if I had it in my back pocket, would get you to change your mind? And I have to say that question worked in the sense that that question stopped them. They had a script. If I brought up any of the content stuff, they had a script for what to say. But when I said that, they couldn't answer it. Some of them would just say, well, offer me proof. And I'd say, well, look, science isn't about proof. I mean, remember trope five, right? Science isn't about proof. Science isn't perfect. You can't uh, expect that. It's just you believe the thing that has better evidence. Um, by saying what evidence would it take to get you to change your mind, it knocked them off script for a moment. Uh, it made them think. Um, because were their beliefs based on evidence? I mean, if they couldn't tell me what evidence would change their mind, it really opened up this question because any scientist can tell you what evidence would change their mind, but they couldn't. 
So really, I mean, I'm kind of uh, happy to say this. I was out there doing technique rebuttal before the Bates and Schmidt study even came out, which is part of why I was so excited when I read the study, because confirmation bias, right? This was this made me so happy. I'm not immune. I went in with the idea that my working theory was that flat earth and indeed all science denial was based on identity and ideology, which meant that no matter what topic it was, all science deniers were reasoning in the same way, which meant that if I could learn how to talk to a flat earther, I could learn how to talk to a climate denier or an anti-vaxxer. This was pre-COVID. Now, to me, flat earth was this great chance to face science denial in its most elemental form. I was also concerned, of course, with the fact that flat earthers use these conventions to recruit new members. So when I'm speaking to someone, we usually had an audience, and I didn't want any false uh, uh, statements to go unchallenged. Even if I didn't convince my conversation partner, maybe somebody else would overhear. But I also wanted to take a shot at reaching the hardest of the hardcore. And who could be the hardest core but the people who were the speakers at the convention? So I'd always try to get a seat next to the stage. And when the speaker came off, I'd say, can I talk to you for a few minutes? Can I ask you a few questions? And, you know, at first they thought I was a flat earther, maybe, but then they heard my questions and they figured it out. My favorite conversation was with a guy who had been one of their main speakers who had just given a talk about how to recruit people into flat earth. And I thought, I've got to talk to this guy because some of the techniques he was talking about to convert them into flat earth were the ones I was using to get them out. And I thought this is going to be a great conversation. So I, I invited him to dinner, my treat, and he accepted. And we sat there for two hours and spoke, just the two of us. He was an extremely intelligent person. He was well-spoken. He was articulate. He was a great debater. And he understood my gambit immediately when I said, what evidence would it take to convince you that you were wrong? He wanted to answer that question because he understood the stakes. But every time he came up with something like going up in a rocket or flying over Antarctica, which they thought didn't exist, uh, he took it back because of a possible conspiracy theory. Well, this, you know, he kept finding reason to doubt whether the evidence could be accurate. Now, by the end of this conversation, we were both exhausted and frustrated with one another. Um, but we parted, you know, on the best terms that, that we could. I didn't convince him. He didn't convince me. And what you all really want to know is, did it work? Did I convince anybody in my time at Flat Earth? Um, I'll say this. Nobody tore off their lanyard and left the convention saying what a fool I was. But that's a pretty high standard. Remember that they had 650 people there to reinforce them, and belief is social, especially when you get to a convention. Um, and I made a mistake, too. Most of my conversations were one-off with a stranger. I mean, if I'd been smart, I would have taken people's email address. I would have followed up. Sometimes you convince them later. Maybe I did convince some people, and I just didn't hear about it. I don't know about that, but, you know, maybe it's the second and third conversation when the person really begins to trust you. Uh, I didn't do that, and I should have. But still, I hope that I made a difference. Uh, at least I built some trust. I got some respect with them for showing up. At least I got them to listen. When I listen to them, they listen to me. And that's the first step. The Flat Earthers Ethic uh, Convention were all making a big deal of the fact 
that no physicists had come to the conference to try to refute them. You know, if they were so wrong, why didn't they show up? And they said it's because they were scared. Now, that's absurd, of course, but it made me think, boy, how, how great would this be? Why aren't there uh, some scientists at the uh, Flat Earth Convention? Maybe I'll, you know, I want to bring one uh, next time. And so I started to wonder about why the scientists weren't showing up. Now, it's no fun to show up to something like that and have somebody question your integrity. But then what do you do? Do you just walk away? Uh, you know, if that happens, I mean, even if you try to do that, um, especially in light of the fact that if Bates and Schmidt have shown that content rebuttal works, shouldn't there be more scientists out there who are giving it a try? I mean, if they're not, then maybe they're denialists, right? The scientists are denialists. We're denialists if we're not reading that study and saying, yes, this is worth our time. It is worth arguing with these people, because if we don't, then only liars will have the microphone and their beliefs will never change. Now, in closing, I want to say that um, what I've outlined here isn't a promise. I think you just heard my, my dog open and close the door there. Sorry about that. What I've outlined here isn't a promise. It's a possibility. What I'm saying isn't that approaching a science denier with empathy, respect, and calm is guaranteed to work. I'm saying that this is the only method that will work if anything will work. Some people just can't be convinced. But if you're lucky enough to be talking to someone who can, don't you want to approach it in the right way? Remember that when you challenge what somebody believes, in a sense, you're challenging who they are. Denialist beliefs are usually cultivated over time in concert with a group of people who believe that falsehood along with them. But I want you to remember, too, that the beliefs that they're hanging on to are not usually something that they just thought up themselves, but rather it's something that they heard from someone else. But how trustworthy is that source? Most science denial stems from disinformation. A shocking amount of the false beliefs that people have about climate and vaccines and the like are the result of a deliberate campaign that was designed to get people to doubt some particular scientific fact because it serves the interests of the person who created the lie to have other people believe it. This is to say that science denial is not usually an accident. It's based fundamentally on a lie. That's not to say that the people who believe it are necessarily liars, but there's a lie behind it. I want you to think here of the tobacco companies who spent decades trying to manufacture doubt over whether cigarettes cause cancer, or the fossil fuel companies donating money to the think tanks that raised doubts about climate change. Now, it may surprise you to learn that a good deal of the misinformation that we just faced during the COVID pandemic was the result of a coordinated propaganda campaign that was cooked up by Russian intelligence, the GRU. Now, that sounds like a conspiracy theory, doesn't it? But it's not. I have the evidence. The evidence is public. You don't have to break into CIA headquarters. The Wall Street Journal did a series on this. There, there's a, quite a number of uh, good uh, uh, sources on this, and, and I'll uh, share them with you if you like. The example that I'm going to tell you about right now is that in April 2020, there was an article that appeared in a public English language publication called the Oriental Review about how any future uh, COVID vaccines would have microchips in them. Now, this was April 2020. Think about where we were in the pandemic in April 2020. No vaccines yet. But it said that um, we were going to be, uh, there were going to be microchips in them. 
Um, Oriental Review is a propaganda arm of the GRU. It's run by Russian intelligence. Um, by May 2020, over 20% of American voters believed it. So that idea that there were microchips in the vaccines, that's crazy idea that quite a number of people still believe, that was a result of a disinformation campaign from a hostile foreign government who was trying to mess with our scientific beliefs, and it worked. Whether the goal is economic or political or ideological, an important part of a disinformation campaign isn't just to get people to have false beliefs, it's to get them to distrust people on the other side. The disinformer's goal is to demonize their opponents and polarize their audience around a factual question. They want to create a sense of us versus them about an empirical issue, to create an environment where we can choose up sides and the people who would disagree with us aren't just wrong or stupid, but might in some sense be evil and even worthy of hatred. Think about what happened to Dr. Fauci. So now you see why building trust is so important in fighting science denial, because trust is the antidote to toxic doubt. It allows you to undercut the disinformer's goal of getting people to think that those who disagree with them are their enemy. And here's the wonderful thing about talking to people face to face. It works not only for getting people to change their beliefs about empirical topics, but also to resign from membership in hate groups. And it's how they get people out of cults. If we can open ourselves up to the idea that the people who believe the disinformer's lies are in some sense victims, we might have a better understanding of what we're up against and why they may even deserve a little bit of our empathy. Science deniers don't just have a fact deficit, they have a trust deficit. They need someone in their life who cares about them and listens to them, who respects them enough to be patient, but also tells them the truth. Could that person be you? The best way to approach a science denier isn't to try to overwhelm them with your superior facts and logic, is to reach out a hand and remind them of our common humanity so that they feel there's room for them on the team that believes in science once they're finally ready to join us. We're now going to go to the questions. Please write the questions in the chat. Um, we do have one that I'm going to lead off with uh, right now, and we've had some that have come in on email. So our first question, I suspect that the reason my friend is refusing to get vaccinated isn't the real reason. Actually, I think that he's afraid of needles. Every time I knock down a reason, such as Pfizer wasn't given final approval, he comes up with another one. There's an endless list of them, and researching them to show him they're wrong takes a lot of time, and he doesn't believe me anyway. So how do I handle this? What do I do? Yeah, this is such a good question. It's such a familiar situation, isn't it? I mean, the short answer is, this is why you listen. This is why you let people talk. Because they will often tell you what it would take to convince them. And the first thing out of their mouth is the rationale that sounds good to them, which may not be the real reason why they believe it. Remember, they're not, they don't have these beliefs based on evidence. So you're not going to convince them with evidence. So that's right. I mean, what you just said in the question, you know, you keep sharing the reasons and they keep changing. And it's because that's not the real reason. Um, the reason could be that they're afraid of needles or they're afraid of something that they haven't said yet. And, you know, you don't want to be vulnerable around somebody who's judging you. So if you try to show empathy and not 
judge them and just keep your mouth shut and listen, they will sometimes, uh, you know, they'll sometimes tell you, uh, sometimes not, but I think that that's your best, uh, that's your best chance. You, you never, you're never going to convince them by just, uh, when I, it occurred to me there, of course, the philosopher in me kind of, you know, I like to pin people down as most philosophers do. So, you know, I was thinking, you know, what if you said to them, uh, and, and I tried this on some people, well, you know, the people who said, well, I'm not going to take the shot because it's not approved by the FDA. And I'd say, well, so if it were approved by the FDA, would you take the shot? And if they said yes, then I'd come back to them and say later, well, FDA just approved it. You know, but that's just a philosopher wanting to be right. I mean, that's not the actual way to convince somebody. That's just to make them feel stupid. Other questions come up on the chat. Is there typically backslide? Once someone changes their belief, does it hold even when they return to their tribe? Um, great question. There is often backsliding. And this is why it's so important to follow up. I mean, you you follow up. It's it's not like you're getting a, a, a signature on a contract and then it's done for all time, right? So by the same logic that you don't give up after your first try, you don't give up even after you've convinced the person because their beliefs will sort of melt and migrate back to what they believed before. You know, there's a, there's a saying uh, in uh, uh, sales, you know, when you've sold it, stop selling, right? Cause you don't want to screw somebody up and have them walk away. But you got to realize that the community that the science denier comes from, they're getting something out of that community, even if it's just camaraderie. And if they're surrounded by other people, you know, so suppose you convince them and then you send them back to their community. They may not last because they're giving up too much. Uh, another way to think of it is to build up the community, introduce them to some scientists or call them more often yourself, be around them more. And then that'll help people to backslide. You know, if you read some of the anecdotal accounts, you'll find that what happened to people is they found a new community. There's a group in uh, Portland, Oregon. I, I wish I could remember what the, the name of it, but it's, it's a group of um, moms who used to be anti-vaxxers and then they became advocates for vaccines and now they've formed a community around that and it, you know it's given them a new community wish i could remember what it was called i can't remember i have another one here um that we've gotten in uh when i've referred to snopes or the new york times or or really anything credible my friend rejects it out of hand as fake news but if you actually look at Snopes and the others, they post the evidence for their reasoning with the original sources. So how do I get him to reconsider and, and, and look at the sources cited? Yeah, it's not about evidence. I mean, isn't that an impossible thing? It's not about evidence. You, you, you cannot force somebody. Uh, look, the person, what's the person telling you? That they don't believe the evidence because it might be false. What they're really saying is, I don't trust this. So that's where to bear down. Why, why don't they trust it? What, what is it? And what you're going to find behind that is a conspiracy theory. Because it's not that they don't trust anybody. They have huge trust for some people. Just maybe they're putting their trust in the wrong place. So you have to figure out how to try to tap into that, right? I mean, I, I remember this when people who are deniers call themselves skeptics. I think they're not a skeptic. They're gullible as hell. 
right? They, they, they're just believing the wrong people. I mean, scientists are skeptical, but they know how to give up their skepticism when the evidence is sufficient. That's the problem with uh, deniers. It's not that it's that they don't know when to say, yeah, I guess it's overwhelming evidence. Now I need to give up my skepticism. Yeah, this feeds into another question we had gotten, uh, which is, yeah, I'll just read it. My friend is convinced that all scientists are corrupted by money and are untrustworthy, except for a few courageous ones who defy the others and seem, yeah. at least to me, to be making money from selling books, pills, or conference tickets. His <laughs> scientists are credible. Yeah. The rest of the scientists in the world are corrupt or foolish or blind to evidence. So this is really that same thing. It yeah. seems to be about trust. It is about trust. And so the best possible thing you can do is undermine their trust in those sources. I'll give you an example. Um, the Center for Countering Digital Hate found a few years ago, they did a study in which they found that 65% of the anti-vax propaganda on Twitter was due to 12 people. They called the disinformation dozen. Now, we can talk about why Twitter hasn't deplatformed all 12 of them. But the interesting thing is that when you get the names of those 12 people, and you start to work on it, what you find out is that a number of them do have a lot of money that they make from selling alternative cures or videotapes or lectures or something else, right? Scientists are not usually rich, and scientists are competitive as hell with one another. There's nothing, the only thing better than having your theory proven right is to have somebody else arrive, prove some rival's theory wrong, right? They're, they're there, to think that there is a worldwide conspiracy of scientists, they don't know scientists. They don't know how they uh, they think. They really are uh, competitive uh, with uh, with one another. So, I think that. But you know, one way is to try to build up their trust in scientists. But another way is to say, I mean, conspiracy theorists they don't like to be fooled. So maybe pick out you know you, the the person that they keep quoting, and then dig up some dirt on that person. It's not going to be hard. Um, that person's a disinformer. You know, they're they're you know driving a limousine. They're making all this money. Um, you know, can you really trust somebody? Uh, look what happened with uh, Andrew Wakefield, the guy who said that the MMR vaccine caused autism. He was a medical doctor, so did he have some credibility? Yes, when he first started his study, but then it came out that he had a conflict of interest because he had a competing financial interest in a competing uh, vaccine. Oh. And then it came out that his data was fraudulent. And then he lost his medical license. Well, there are still some people who think he's a hero. But all of the things that I just brought up greatly undermine his credibility. And I think it's fair game to point that out to somebody who trusts a source that's not credible. Okay, I've got some more. I've got more computer problems. We just got an alert that we may have a power failure here, which will be somewhat exciting. But we got a... Uh, well, it's up to 100 degrees now. Yeah. Um, I, it's suddenly, I don't feel so bad about my husky running in the room. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I've, I've got problems all over the place. Anyway, uh, here's another question that came in from the chat. Yeah. Uh, a colleague of mine liked to cherry pick facts and confused correlation with causation. Yeah. My favorite, ventilators caused the majority of COVID deaths. In his mind, this was proof. How do you deal with this? That, that's a tough one. I mean, because anybody who's ever studied statistics knows 
that correlation is not the same as causation. Now, I'm always tempted here to tell a joke that everybody I've ever known who confuses correlation with causation dies. Think about that, you know? They'll eventually die. Is that just a coincidence, right? Um, that's just a joke. I mean, look, this is this is part of trope five. This is part of demanding that science has to be perfect. Unless a scientist can show a causal link, um, then we shouldn't believe them. Well, I want you to remember who sort of invented that little trick. It was the tobacco companies in 1953 who met in a, a room at the Plaza Hotel in New York City and hired a, a public relations specialist to tell them what to do because there was an upcoming scientific study which showed this gigantic correlation between smoking and lung cancer. And the public relations guy told them, fight the science, which they did. So all, they didn't need to prove that cigarette smoking didn't cause cancer. All they needed to show is that the causal link between cigarette smoking and cancer has never been definitively established. Well, duh, the causal link between any two things has never been definitively established. Read David Hume. Uh, so, I mean, they were right, but they were dishonest, and they rode that for 40 years while they sold cigarettes. I, I think that's worth pointing out, that the people who um, insist on causation rather than correlation are the people who were duped by the cigarette companies for 40 years. Yeah, there's another one here. Um, it's actually uh, something I run into. My friend and I have already been fighting about his belief in a conspiracy theory and are barely talking now, especially yeah. after I told him that he was an idiot. He said I was a sheep. <laughs> How do I reopen the conversation? Oh, man. Uh, now, that, now that is a tough poison. one. That is a tough one. Yeah, the name calling. Some of the most heartbreaking mail that I get. Uh, I get a lot of mail. Some of it's hate mail. Some of it is fan mail. Some of it is heartbreaking. And it's from people who have family members who are flat earthers or anti-vaxxers. And they want to know what to do. And they want to know what to do, not just to convince the person, but to keep the family together. You know, how, how, how do you, because they, they're estranged from, you know, it breaks up the family. Um, and the advice that I give people routinely is show them as much love as possible. Show them that you care. Show them that you're, you, you know, you care about them as human being. Um, it's a funny thing, you know, sometimes we're meanest to the persons, to the people that we love the most. Sometimes we're the rudest to our friends and family. And you just can't do that. I mean, because we started off this talk saying, uh, you know, I started off by saying that, you know, if you were trying to convince your friends and family, you had a leg up because maybe they already trusted you. Don't abuse that trust by being rude. Don't abuse that trust by name calling because um, it still matters how you treat them. Okay. Um, some of the most heartwarming stories that I hear are about people who change their mind because a family member approached them. Um, I heard one story about a, a, a man who changed his mind, a dad who changed his mind about climate change, because his teenage daughter finally came to him and said, Dad, you keep quoting all these people that you've seen on the internet that you don't even know 
but you won't even listen to your own daughter. That's what broke through with him. So, you know, finding that emotional connection is important. I don't know how to put the pieces back together after you've called somebody an idiot and they called you a sheep. I, that's for Dr. Phil. I don't know. Uh, actually, it reminds me of something that uh, Dr. Pierre said in the previous um, talk in this, in this series. Uh, when he said about people coming to Thanksgiving dinner or whatever, and what advice was there. And he yeah. said, simply tell people ahead of time, we're not discussing whatever the conspiracy theory is. We're not discussing politics. We're not discussing climate yeah. change. <laughs> we're going to have a wonderful family dinner. And what that does, I realized, is it, it, no, <laughs> and what it does is it brings them back into the fold. It gives them a place to go. They feel supported. And so they'll be able to, at some point in the future, change their own mind about their conspiracy theory because they no longer need that group to support them. They are, okay. They're being welcomed back into their family at Thanksgiving or whatever without okay. that feeling. Maybe. Of, of, I mean, may, may, maybe my family dinners were more contentious than that. But I mean, I, I wouldn't let them get away. With, look, I wouldn't enable anybody. If, if we're not going to talk about you know, flat earth at the dinner table, then we're not going to talk about it. But the minute they bring it up, I'm going to push back, right? Um, because, some, I mean, I've, I've said in public that maybe the Thanksgiving table is the ideal place to have these conversations, not in a screaming, shouting match, but just, you know, the warmth of the, of the family gathering, maybe after dinner, during dessert, you know, something, I mean, Look, it, it, everybody's family is different, um, and I, I, I recognize that. And sometimes you just you want to have the, the you know the nice family gathering, but when this is especially heartbreaking is during COVID, when some people wouldn't get vaccinated, so they couldn't come to these family gatherings. That's this problem, you know, times ten. Because what do you what do you do then? How do you convince somebody that they're still in the family and you still care about them and love them? if they're not invited to the family dinners anymore. It's, it's hard. I mean, look, you, you if it's possible, you have to reach out. And I say this, even though I have family members who are deniers and I can't reach them, it is hard to do. Yeah, that... Yeah, sometimes I feel the best thing to do is just walk away and not engage. Well, but be careful though. Remember what the empirical, remember what the Bates and Schmidt study showed. You can't just let the liar have the microphone. You have to engage, if only to keep the the misinformation from being amplified. If if the scientists and all the science allies just go home and pretend that this problem is going to go away, it won't go away. 7% of the population of Brazil are flat earthers. That's 11 million people. I think I heard Dr. Pierre say last, uh, last time that uh, 16% of Americans weren't sure of the shape of the earth and that 4% thought it was flat. That's a shocking number. It's, it's worse. And I like the way that he put it. It's worse than it used to be. There may not be more deniers, but they have a, a louder voice they, they're, they're not just standing on the street corner with a mimeograph anymore. They've got a, an internet, uh, uh, you know, they, they've got a website. So, so and it's, uh, he said they were more consequential. He's right. They're in Congress now. We've got deniers in Congress. Yeah. 
Um, I have one more here, and then we'll take another one from the chat. Uh, the problem I'm having is my friend isn't 100% sure that vaccines are safe. He keeps worrying that in five years, we might discover some horrible side effect. So he won't do anything. But I tell him in science, nothing is 100%. Yeah. And uh, I, I worry that he's never going to move. I think that's the right way to handle it. I mean, look, you can't prove that aspirin is safe. You can't prove that anything is 100% safe. If that's your standard, you wouldn't leave the house, right? So this person who won't take the vaccine because it hasn't been proven safe, they drive a car, they fly, they do all sorts of other things. One other thing that they do, in fact, is go out in public and get exposed to COVID, which is also dangerous. So you have to, I mean, there's such a thing as, uh, you know, assessing the different risks. What is the uh, risk of getting COVID and dying or passing it on to somebody else who dies versus the risk of the shot? And, you know, when people are afraid uh, in, in this chaotic environment, in which they're distrustful and they're polarized and they're hearing misinformation, um, that's when it's really difficult for them to make a good risk assessment, because then any little tiny risk seems terrible. Um, you know, I mean, there are there's a formal way to study, you know, r risk assessment and that. But that's not what people do. They're, they just say, you know, the safe strategy is to do nothing. Think about, well, the safe strategy, if, if you if you have a 401k plan, the safest strategy in a way is to put it all in gold or cash. But you'll never retire. I mean, it, it's that's. It, just maybe that's a bad analogy, but my point is there are risks both ways, right? There are risks of losing money. There's risks of not having enough money when you retire. There's a risk of the, from the shot, tiny, minuscule, versus the risk that you'll get COVID and die, much greater risk. I personally know someone who, um, young woman, I'm not going to say too much more about it, young woman who would not take the shot because she was afraid and felt that she was young and strong, uh, was on a ventilator for 30 days, almost died. Nearly died many different times. She survived it. I have, uh, okay, one final one from uh, the chat here. Um, has there ever been a conspiracy theory that, that you believed and that <laughs> you then came around? And, and how did that happen? How did you convince yourself? or be convinced that it, it really was a conspiracy? I have worried more about conspiracy theories since I started to study them, kind of policing my own brain to, you know, to see if there are things that I, if the things that I believe have, uh, have good reason. The, the, one, the one that uh, almost got me was 5G. When 5G first came out, I started to worry that there were, you know, all that, you know, electromagnetic radiation, and didn't I need a Faraday cage over my router, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, I mean, I wasn't one of these people out burning the cell phone towers or, you know, thinking that it caused COVID, but I just remember thinking that can't be good for you, or let me put it this way. What's the advantage of having that much electromagnetic radiation, you know, aimed at my body all day from my router? So I bought a little, you know, Faraday cage to put over it, and I, I don't use it anymore. But I mean, for a couple of weeks, I did it. And then I thought, here I am 
writing about science denial and conspiracy theories. And I got the little Faraday cage over my router. Um, and uh, But I mean, look, that kind of skepticism is not a bad thing to have at the beginning when they don't know. But when something has been studied, when the evidence has come forward, then you modify your beliefs. But look, sometimes even when the scientific debate is settled, new evidence can come forward. And you know what you do then? You change your mind. That's what scientists do. I wrote an earlier book called The Scientific Attitude, in which I argue that that is, in fact, the hallmark of being a good scientist, that you change your mind in the face of new evidence. Doesn't mean that you believe nothing. Doesn't mean that you believe anything. It means that you qualify your beliefs based on the proportion of the evidence. And then when the evidence changes, you change your mind. And I think that's what I did with uh, with 5G. I started out skeptical and uh, changed my mind. You did some, yeah, I, I mean, there are databases out there. There have been like 5,000 studies of 4G and 5G. Yeah. And uh, eventually you find them, right? Okay, well, at that point, uh, we're running out of time here. And I'm worried that my power is going to go off entirely. So, <laughs> Our gratitude to Dr. McIntyre for being with us today. And we're also grateful to our audience here as well as those listening to the recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 119th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.